I've got some good news for you. Losing weight just got easier. WW Weight Watchers Reimagined has a groundbreaking new program called My WW that matches you with your very own customized weight loss plan. All you do is take the new My WW personal assessment, answer simple questions about things like your eating habits and behaviors to unlock your own plan that can make losing weight easier. Head on over to www.com. That's www.com to join WW today with a limited time offer. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 675.mk0333, certificate number 12952, Mother Jones. Have you ever considered unionizing this show? Uh, I'm kind of afraid there's a union's going to form and yeah. that you and I as the bosses are going to be left holding the bag. I thought that we would be unionizing against the bosses, but we're, the, we're, we're the bosses. Now we are. That's true. We almost, we almost struck against our corporate overlords. That's true. But we were too invested in, in providing the future links with this information. We didn't want to risk it. No. And also we didn't want to call up a bunch of other podcasters and see if they would you know, hold up a piece of paper that says union. Can you imagine see if they'd do it. a union of podcasters? What a, <laughs> what a multi-headed hydra that would be. Yeah. Good luck trying to have a March cause you'd have to get them out of the house. But we, um, we are generally pro labor given that you and I are both on the, on the, what would be described traditionally as the left end of the political spectrum. I think so. And I'm not even one of these unions were great in their time, but boy, they sure messed everything up. Like I kind of feel like the weakening of the labor movement in America has actually done a lot of harm. So you're, you remain pro-union. Yeah. Wow. I'm not, Controversial stance. I feel like you don't, you don't want to be one of those guys who was like, X was good, but it went too far. Cause, yeah, cause right. then what if X is the civil rights movement, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I also remain pro-union. My dad was union a labor organizer, a labor activist. Um, did he did he travel around? Uh, did he just travel around America trying to? No, he was. He worked primarily as an arbitrator here in Washington. Um, like big companies, like Boeing, or uh, no? It was the waterfront. He ah. was a he was a, a an arbitrator for the 
you know, the Longshoremen's Union and the Stevedores and whatnot. So waterfront the and wobblies. labor unions, two things that are never mobbed up at all. <laughs> like, was there any, was there any crime uh, issues going oh, on? Oh, there there's the always time? crime, Ken. Think about all the crime that happens. I bet you know you're gonna you're gonna overturn the milk cow because of one cup of no tang. We could all make a little. We could all make a nice profit here. Sure. That's that's my motto. Sure. We can we can figure this out. Hand me that envelope that you that's tucked into <laughs> your jacket. Uh, well, you know the story of the labor unions in the United States is um, is a kind of a, a tremendous story, a tremendous tale and a and an you know an elaborate and and multivarious cross generational yeah. it's uh and happening um happening both simultaneously and alongside what's happening in Europe at the same time and the rise of kind of uh collective theory and and the rights Socialism. of labor but uh but also happening in a very distinctive american way um it's kind of funny that it ever happened. You know, when you look at the state of America now, you really don't feel like it's the kind of culture where a, a workers' movement would take root. Well, it's funny because, the you know, we're living in an era now that we recognize as kind of a time when capital has, has, in, uh, has kind of coalesced in, uh, uh, among a very few and— um, Capitalism has become very concentrated and corporatized and it's calcified. Calcified. You can't seize the means of production now. Like it's like four guys. What are the odds you're going to meet one of them? But good luck seizing the means of production when that guy won't get off his plane. Though uh, this this that we're seeing now has happened multiple times in the in just the the short period of the American couple of centuries, mm -hmm. um, and at the very height of the sort of robber baron era of the late 19th century, capital was consolidated at about the same level as it is now. Is that true? Yeah. Like by, by measures of income inequality or right. controlled percentage of GNP or whatever? Yeah, the 1% then controlled, a, you know, the same amount of the same proportion of the capital as the 1% now. They just owned more monocles. They own more monocles. They own more uh, railroads and coal mines, and more mutton chops per capita. <laughs> the uh, the rich now own comparatively few railroads and and coal mines. Although, although the f uh, friend of the show Warren Buffett is, uh, <laughs> is listener Warren Buffett. Hey Warren is uh, is c consolidating his uh, his rolling stock. Right, he he owns. He decided he was going to get into the railroad business. Today, it's all virtual railroads. Wisely. People just get into the digital railroad that is uh, Facebook. Yeah. It's, it's always railroading people. Yeah, it's people. a series of tubes. It's like, except we're the cattle getting loaded onto the cars now. Although Elon Musk really into that. that uh, he wants a tube. <laughs> that cost overrun plagued tube. He just wants a single tube. He doesn't want a series of tubes. He sees that and thinks, <laughs> I just want one tube. One fast tube. One long tube. One like, fast tube and like, then I'm Like gone. when you put the cylinder in the thing at the bank and it goes. Yeah. Pneumatic tube. It's like a pneumatic tube, but he's like, what if that, but between Vancouver and San Francisco? You know, pneumatic tubes is on my list of omnibus topics. It's, it's going to be, by the time you hear this, we have done the pneumatic tube show. It's yeah. a huge hit. Yeah. There's photos of pneumatic tubes on the Facebook group. That's right. Everybody's going into their old office buildings and finding the little 
defunct pneumatic tube. Because you often will see them right yeah. by. You go to a hotel that's old enough, and there will be one right by the elevator to send uh, to send room service requests down to the kitchen. Please don't send us these photos now. Wait, wait for the actual <laughs> show there. Uh, but a lot of the unions in America uh, evolved out of the Industrial Revolution and the. Um, and the fact that at at that point in time, early on in the Industrial Revolution, there had not yet consolidated all that capital into the hands of a very few. It was still a sort of, well, literally a Wild West, but also— It's a land rush, sometimes yeah. literally. Um, one of the first and most powerful unions in the United States was the glassblowing union. Really? Because glassblowers were considered a, a, a very refined— class of worker that had the, had a high set of skills. So even if you're like, I don't agree with unions, but you know who needs special protection is our fighting men and women in the glass blowing mines. And, and there was a, there was a sense of, um, glass blower unity, um, that, uh, that, uh, that owners, you know, because glass blowers did all the, the bottles for medicaments and patent medicines, Un- unguents and poultices, all the, uh, all the lab glass. I mean, plus alcohol. I mean, alcohol. Like we can't. I'm sure that's the biggest use case. And so there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of pressure on uh, on manufacturers because the glass blowers were the, this high paid cast, and it's a, it's a really skilled job. So they, skilled they have job. a lot of power. And so the owners continually tried to. Uh, to flood the market with lesser qualified glass blowers, and so glass blowers had to had to resist. At a certain point, there was a um, there was an apprentice program, a, a glass blower apprentice program, but it was run by the owners of the companies, and they tried to run as many apprentices through as they could to dilute the workforce. Right, and the uh, the glass blowers. Yeah, part of their unionization was to try and take over the apprenticeship program you, so that they could choke off the supply. You just show the the apprentice glassblower some really substandard glassblowing techniques. Right, just make them well. And so, hey, I taught you everything you know, but that doesn't mean I taught you everything I know. Green, green glass was uh, was considered sort of a lesser glass compared to like crystal glass, and there are two two different. Is groups that right? Of, yeah, glassblowers. Well, Coca Cola is not going to sponsor this podcast anymore. Oh, well, they used white glass, didn't they? I guess they, clear glass in their bottles? Coke used to have green bottles, and now they don't, huh? Yeah, well, boy, those were the days. Those were Am the I days. Right? Uh, but, but then, uh, you know, as, as uh, organized labor started to grow in popularity, um, really it was like miners, iron workers, uh, wrought iron was very popular. These seem like dangerous jobs. Is that, is that, is that kind of what drives it? Well, there, I mean, there's all, a lot of widows and orphans. All jobs in the past were dangerous. <laughs> yes, every job, every job was equally dangerous. <laughs> there are very few Bartleby the Scriveners in this story and a lot of people that are out Even swinging today, a hammer. If you go on Twitter, Scriveners are trying to unionize and it'll be like, good job, good news, we unionized BuzzFeed and then it'll be like, oh, we failed to unionize FeedBuzz. You know, GeekWire has fallen, but Wired has not. The, scri- the Scriveners are still struggling. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, now... We think of unions as being the province of kind of auto workers, but um, but in the 19th century, of course, there was like I mean, yeah, manufacturing a thing was not 
where business was at, right? Well, and uh, there was just there was so much labor involved in uh, in the expansion of the railroads because it involved. I mean, what what made the steel industry what it was was that the railroads were were expanding west. So there was all this mining that had to happen, all this refining, all this production of steel, all the mining of coal that would power the plants that were producing the steel to push the railroads. It was a huge, you know, national enterprise. And um, did it did it feel like it was maybe is patriotic to protect these workers? Like this is what the the West needs. This is for the frontier. Well, no, because organized labor has always been a threat to uh, to sovereignty. You know, it's. Um, I'm just wondering how public opinion shakes out on something like that. Well, it, it sort of depends on where you live, right? And uh, for instance, in it wasn't until 1886 that um, that the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, was founded. Um, and it was a, a competition between two ideas of labor organizing. The AFL was organized around the idea it was it was a style of union called a craft union, which which understood organizing labor to be something that you did based on the particular skill set that you had as a worker. So a craft union, oh. you would have a labor, you would have a union of. It would be bricklayers, but it would be across ten industries instead of everybody who worked in the one plant. Right, well, and and often you know a limited amount of uh, or a limited number of workers. If you could find a specialization that made sense, like you know the green glass blowers and the white glass blowers would end up being in separate unions. I guess that gives you some power if you control if you control everybody's access to labor of that kind. You're in a much better bargaining position. That's right. right. If they shut down one key element in a manufacturing process, they could shut the whole operation down, and so it gave these craft unions a lot of power. But what it produced was a situation where labor was often pitted against itself because mm, right. the 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 white glass blowers would strike, but the truck drivers would have to cross the picket line in order to perform their job. And they didn't feel any particular, there wasn't a, uh, the, 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 the sense that came later that unions all respected one another's strikes. There'd be, be a very clear hierarchy, right? Like if, right. if it's hard to find and train skilled glassblowers, that's a union that has a lot of power and pull and leverage. Whereas if it's very easy to tra- train somebody to drive the truck, then those guys have no pull at all. And also the result of a glassblower strike would be improved conditions for glassblowers. But the truckers are on strike and losing wages. That's true. And they don't benefit from the strike. Plus, none of your medicaments come in bottles anymore. You have to buy like a gourd of uh, of Tylenol. That's right. You have to, yeah, just it, get it in. It a, just comes in a, in a gourd of some you kind. You hold your hat out and they fill it with, with Tylenol. <laughs> and and the reason that there became a, a, a CIO, which I know we think of the AFL-CIO as a single uh, – organization, a union organization. But that was a merger. It was a merger. And the CIO originally split off from the AFL as a, because they, they wanted to organize according to what was called an industrial union model, which was, as you said earlier, across, um, across unions. Uh, but, but, uh, Top to bottom, it's or a, up it's and a, down. It's a, you've unionized a workplace. That's right. Okay. So if a factory went on strike, 
everybody would go on strike there and they'd shut the factory down. The idea being the longer the picket line, the shorter the, the strike had to be. And, um, and then all of, all of the laborers would sort of mutually benefit from improved conditions or you would, you know, you would strike as a group. Solidarity. You start to build a little class solidarity. That's exactly there. right. Um, and there were a lot of things at stake. I mean, there were working conditions at stake. There were, there were, um, the uh, long hours. Yeah, there was I mean, no 40 hour. There was no week. eight hour, eight hour day. There was child labor. Um, women were paid, not just sort of the, the, um, the, the fairly significant amount less than men that they're paid now. Like they would be dreaming of 72 cents on the dollar. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, would when, lo- they would love that. Women they would run were into often, traffic for that. They were paid children's wages. Mm. Uh, you know, they were, uh, they were worked um, in conditions of, you know, complete servitude. But also in a lot of these coal mines and other industrial situations that happened closer to the frontier or up in the mountains of West Virginia or way out in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, the the mine and the environment around the mine was completely uh, isolated from anywhere else, any town or any, any uh, stores or commerce of any kind. And so you got this company store model where the town owned the housing. The town owned the store. The town paid their workers in non-negotiable company script. Your boss just owns you all just the time. Owns you. It's and, just the same as today with email, but, and they, they but at would, least you, you can know, go to Amazon. They'd give you like uh, advances on your pay, at which point you're now in debt to the company. So you're basically working to pay off your own uh, you know, and they continue to extend you credit. And pretty soon, yeah, you're effectively a This is what happens, slave. John, when the workers don't organize. This is what happens. That's right. And and there were, you know, there were lots of strikes during this period. There was um there was a, a big railroad strike in 1877 that kind of shut down the railroads. Um the railroad strike produced a lot of violence. Uh and there there was uh, there was often I mean these strikes were often characterized by violence and that violence came because uh, this was during a period when it was much more overt than it is now that the owners uh, w- controlled the political power that would that would um, that gave them the power to ask a governor to call in the national guard, mm-hmm. and in, in in situations where the local law enforcement wouldn't support the owners, they had the power to call in their own private police forces, and what we would call like you know Blackwater now. But they were domestic. Uh, they were just big Irish guys. Yeah, right. But, but that's what that's what uh, Blackwater used to be called. Big, big for big Irish guys. Big Irish guys. But you know, kind of thuggish sheriffs that would come in and 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 often open fire. Jeez. Um, the the uh, the violence around the railroad strike in 1877 is part of why you see so many armories built in the centers of metropolitan areas. Those big brick armories that you know those. Several in Brooklyn. There used to be one here in Seattle that overlooked the waterfront. Is the one on, like right under the Space Needle that's now a food court and an art center? Was that also uh, of that time? That was a later armory uh, that that happened during World War One because World War One was a time when those armories were repurposed. But the earlier armories that were built in the 19th century <laughs> were built at partly to um, 
you know, as sort of redoubts and national guard stockpiles against the people's uprisings. Yeah, that's before right. before the Kaiser, our real enemy was coal miners, coal miners, and uh, and glass blowers and textile workers. Um, one of the big original labor unions was uh, the Knights of Labor. I like that they're knights. Like that really gets you on their side. It's very romantic. Well, and the original name of the Knights of Labor was the Noble and Holy Order of yeah. the Knights of Labor. See, it's kind of tying into these um, uh, what do you call them? Fraternal organizations right. of the time that do that you know do good in the community. The Knights of Columbus or whatever, and very much, very much connoted a kind of Masonic mm-hmm. order. Uh, it was a secret society, but the model of labor union that the Knights of Labor practiced was across all work. So anyone that was a worker was eligible to join the Knights of Labor past a certain point, past the point that they decided to open themselves up and become like a general union of all working people. And one of their, you know, one of the big things they wanted to do was pass the eight hour work week. Uh, or I'm sorry, eight hour work day. Wouldn't it be nice? I, I want to pass the eight I hour mean, work basically week. you and I have an eight hour work week. <laughs> That's the podcasters' union. <laughs> no, no. First demand. Hey, Miles. Hey, it's me, Jack. <laughs> right here, Thank you. right next to you, buddy. Right next to me. Yeah, usual. just like at work. Hey, uh, I wanted to join with you to tell people uh, <laughs> to tune in to a very special episode, special Yeah. Of TDZ, the yeah. Daily Zeitgeist. This is actually look. I know you saw the social media. You mm-hmm. saw us at the LA Auto Show. You said, what are these two juggernauts of podcasting doing there? <laughs> when Mazda calls me up and they say, Miles, we know that you're a loyal Mazda owner. We want to align with you mm. because you get it. Yes. And I said, you know what? I'm willing to answer the call and help ding, ding. help people understand the power of it. So what we did is we actually got to record a special episode inside the new Mazda CX-30 uh, where we talked about kind of like flow states and yeah. feeling alive and how we feel alive. What makes us feel alive? Yeah. It was really dope to actually record inside the car. I got to press a lot of buttons and make them mad because they're like, please don't fumble around in here. Yeah, but I said, I'm a it. child. I like to explore. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless, if you actually want to check out the first ever CX-30, check it out at MazdaUSA.com slash iHeart. Or if you're trying to check it up IRL, then pull up to the local dealership today. That brings us to the topic of today's show. At long last. At long last, almost 20 minutes in, as is our style, as we, the style of the time. We get notes either way. We yeah. get complaints either way. Um, in 1837, in ye old Ireland. Ooh, we're, going, we're hopping back to before are. the American labor movement. And so we right. have referenced Ireland already several times in this show. Lovingly, because, because, because of our deep affection for it. And it feels, it feels like Ireland played a played a big role in the labor movement, or Irish immigrants, rather, because the, uh, the big immigration from Ireland happened sort of coincident with the rise of the industrial era. Uh, I mostly uh, am interested in the role of the Irish Bulgarians. The in, Irish Bulgarians? Yeah, making all this happen. I, uh, I have a lot of firsthand experience with Irish Bulgarians that we'll get to later. Oh, no, we've gotten to already. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, a young woman by the name of Mary Harris, wa- Doth was born. I guess she was a very young woman when she was born. Maybe the for briefly, she might have been the youngest person on the planet uh, for for a few seconds. A few I'm seconds. sure she was. Mm-hmm. Um, she was born to a to a large family in Ireland, and in the in the 1840s, during the 
the disastrous potato famine there. They emigrated as a family to the to North America. They they came to Canada first. Uh, she was raised, went to a teacher's college. You know, kind of raised to be a a. Uh, she was governess or instructress. Yeah, she, of some that's kind. right. She was a smart smart gal and be and raised to be a teacher. Uh, eventually, she sort of emigrated out of Canada following the work down to Chicago and then eventually to Memphis where she met and married a man by the name of George Jones, not, not the country star. Stand by your man, Mary Harris. Uh, and he was already a member of the International Molders and Founders Union. Oh yeah, the IMFU. Which was founded in 1859 because this Molders and Founders Wait, what were, are Molders and Okay, Founders are in a foundry. A foundry. Are, are Molders in a moldery? Molders, Molders are from Moldovia. <laughs> uh, they... You know, they're working with wrought iron. They're, they are iron workers. It's different parts of the iron workers yeah. industry. Some people mold, some people found. Got it. And, uh, and she and he, you know, built a happy life together. He was making a good enough living as a, as a molder and founder that she sort of left her teaching life and devoted herself to the domestic arts. I feel like you need to combine the molders and founders into one union and just call it the MFers. That happened later. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't use that. The name. MFers, then the FM MFers, <laughs> uh, and they they had built a, a pretty you know middle class life there, middle middle class working people's life in Memphis. But in uh, 1867, when she was when our heroine Mary uh, Harris now Jones Mary Harris Jones, uh, when she was 30 years old, a yellow fever epidemic struck. Uh, the Memphis area. Ooh. This is a little bit of a cautionary tale for any anti-vaxxers that might be listening. Or or, or uh, super intelligent mosquitoes. Super intelligent mosquitoes, super intelligent yellow fever virus might be <laughs> sitting on the edge of their chairs you right did now. It. This like, was, this, yes! This was your big moment. Yes! This is like the moment in the Planet of the Apes prequels where the apes take over. <laughs> Yay! They're like, tell us more. What did we do? What did we do? You all confronted them on the Golden Gate Bridge and you got them. Well, what you did in this instance, sentient yellow fever, is you killed... George Jones, and all four of their children. Oh, wow. So she lost her entire family to one, you know, month-long just yellow was, fever epidemic. And that was just not unexpected at the time. That just, could that You were living with the knowledge that that could happen any month. It just happened. This I mean, could be the month we all get cholera. Yellow fever is one of those viral infections that has no, I mean, you can be inoculated uh, against it, but once you contract the virus, you're just on the course. You're, you ride it out. And even now, uh, yellow fever, if if it gets to the level of, of uh, infection, kills about half the people that get it. Wow. I just didn't realize it was, uh, I think of it as a tropical disease, yeah. not a Memphis disease. Well, it had, um, yellow fever was introduced to the Americas during the slave trade. Mm. And then once it was in Central America and South America, you know, it follows the mosquitoes. And the mosquitoes, Memphis is a pretty boggy part of the United States. No offense to Memphis. Memphians, 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 Memphisema. Hmm. I'm pretty sure it's Memphites. Is that wrong? Memphites? You don't think that's it right? It can't possibly be Memphites. <sighs> we're going to get so many emails. I'm <laughs> I'm already unhappy about all the things we're going to have to read about the demonym of Memphis. Uh, so you know, it, it got it got hot and muggy that year, and the mosquitoes came up the river and um, and killed her whole family. Yikes! So she left Memphis. She went up to um, she went back to Chicago, and she started a dressmaking business she she was now in labor 
you know, she her association with her husband who was part of a labor union. And this is, you know, pretty mid 19th century, right? It's this I mean that this all happened um during the period of the Civil War, right? She mm-hmm. they they met and married um in 1861 and her family died in 1867. So, you know, labor is happening in the context of of the Civil War during this period. And I guess if she was in Memphis, like she's on a border state, I but guess Confederacy, right? Yeah, that would have been a Confederate port until <sighs> it was lost. So he's in making, the Battle of Memphis. He's making iron for the Confederate munitions and railroads. I and, like to think that he was just making wrought iron for the for the riverboat gamblers, <laughs> the balconies on the riverboats. I think he was making iron uh, uh, from his. He was working iron out of his love of iron. But, that's right. He, he, he was. Just, a, he just like molding and founding. He he doesn't even follow the greater events of state. It was a craft union. He was probably making roulette tables <laughs> out of iron. But um, but she uh, she went to Chicago. Uh, w- w- you know where she'd passed through on her on her migration mm-hmm. and settled there and opened a dress shop, which uh, in 1871, a mere four years later, was completely destroyed in the Chicago fire. Oh my gosh, Mother Jones can't catch a break. No, no, Mother Jones now 34 years old, having lost everything. Ex Mother Jones again. Uh, well, she wasn't known as Mother Jones at this point. She was still uh, Mary Harris Jones, M H. During this period, all it seems like all men who are in, engaged in union work or industrial work, uh, or on on both sides, labor side and owner side, are referred to by their first two initials: J. D. Rockefeller, um, you know, J. P. Morgan. Would you say that in person? Because you always see it on sign painting. You know, it's R. W. Kerwin's haberdashery. Right. But would you really see him and go R. W. It's been a while. I believe you would. I mean, do you know what J. P. Morgan's? It's John Pierpont. Point Morgan, but you wouldn't have ever John. called him John. I guess it's J.P. Morgan is how he's. But what if it's a W? That's just so many syllables. W. Pierpoint. That's a case where the W it probably takes longer to say than Warren or whatever the William or whatever the name is it's uh, standing in for. So my uncle's name was uh, we, he was known as C. Calvert Knutson. Did people call him C? No, they C. called Calvert. him Cal. Oh, but his real name was you know Calvert Calvert. It wasn't. He was not the protagonist of a of a mid century novel. No, his real name was, I think, like uh, not Kookaburra because that's a K. But you know, uh, I don't even know what was my uncle's name. It was Charles. No, I don't think so. I mean, he went with Calvert, which it, so is so it's worse than Calvert. Yeah, I think it was Cornwallis. <laughs> Cuthbert. It might have been Cuthbert. We'll just say it was Cuthbert I have Calvert. No idea what my uncle's name was. Oh, you're a replicant. We did it. We figured C, it out. C. C. Knutson, but it was always C. Calvert, mm-hmm. and it made me think for a while of going by J. Morgan Roderick. Honestly, that's something that uh, in- initials didn't actually die off until like the counterculture of the '60s. Like you know, U.S. presidents were always. Harry S. Truman, right. Dwight D. Eisenhower, men were traditionally first name, middle initial. That was kind of the last right. fortification, you know, the last stand of the initials. And we, then, did, did you ever call him William Jefferson Clinton? No, it's, it, it left, who was the last one? Lyndon B. Johnson? No, I, we did George W. because we distinguished we him from George Herbert to. Walker. But nobody was saying Ronald W. Reagan, James E. Carter. No. Like Richard M. Nixon was kind of the... Last of it, and he was a throwback to being Eisenhower's vice president. Right. Gerald R. Ford, we we did say. I guess. So that was it. It was between Gerald R. Ford. Four. So Carter ruined it. Carter killed initials? 
Carter killed it. Well, it was Kennedy part of it was, it was part of his fifty-five mile an hour speed limit. Uh, <laughs> America's just having too good a time with these initials. We need to it was, zip mean, up our sweaters. And there's no better definition of malaise than not being able to use your middle <laughs> initial anymore. Uh, but it was during the aftermath of the Chicago Fire and the reconstruction of the Chicago Fire that uh, that Mary Harris. Or I guess now Mary Jones, Mary H. Jones, Mary H. Jones. Uh, she got involved. She watched the you know the the uh, the work that went on to rebuild Chicago, and became active in the uh, the noble and ho- holy order of the Knights of Labor or the Knights of Labor. She became a kind of because the construction guys rebuilding the city were were all unionized and right. So she's hanging out with union men. She's hanging out with them, and and uh, and became you know she's like lost everything. But this is Twice. A, this is a community that she that she felt welcomed by, and she felt you know a certain sort of uh, she had a she was known as a as a great orator. She had a really? she had a melodious voice. She had a, uh, an ability to to kind of. Um, Captivate a room. She's got that teacher's background, so she does. classroom management. One of the first things you learn. But she became uh, she became radicalized and gradually Uh-oh. radicalized. Uh, and I think, uh, like a lot of people, she was radicalized by um, in the, in eighteen eighty six what was referred to as the Haymarket Affair. Mm, right. And are you familiar with the Haymarket Affair? Everybody Do you who guys- cares about the history of labor. And to this day, kids learn about Haymarket Square. I mean, you're not supposed well, we said Haymarket Square riot when I was a kid, and I think that has gone away because it's insufficiently pro-labor to claim that the, the people were rioting. Right. Uh, Haymarket Square massacre is too anti is too anti-capital. So what so what happened in and and I will let the futurelings decide for themselves whether it was a riot or a massacre. Uh, but in in May of 1886, there was a, a peaceful workers demonstration, a gathering of all the workers there in, in Chicago, and they were agitating, which again immediately throws uh, into question whether or not it was a peaceful. How do you agitate and it's also peaceful? I guess you can. My washing machine can agitate, and I'm not like uh, open fire on it. But it doesn't sound peaceful. I feel like it's doing its thing. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Uh, and that was true of these workers. Uh, they were uh, they were advocating for an eight eight hour workday, and um, somewhere during the protest, someone threw a bomb. And this is going to depend on whether you call it a riot or a massacre, uh, because the police had were, had arrived and were trying to disperse the gathering. They're on big horses. And you know, dispersing the gathering is is intrinsically a sort of anti labor movement or an anti labor uh, what Tactic. gesture? Oh, yeah, there's a constitutional right to assembly. Uh, but they're sort of doing it, as you say, sort of you know, just riding their horses through and saying like, "All right, everybody, let's break it up." Someone throws a bomb. Now, this was also during an era of uh, of anarchism mm-hmm. ascendant. Uh, the this I- is the fear that European bomb chucking weirdos are going to come over to our shores. That's right, throwing throwing their bombs and and ruining America. Big black uh, <laughs> spy spheric- versus spy spherical bombs, bombs <laughs> with long hissing fuses. So uh, the bomb blew up, you know, among the police. Their guns were brandished on both sides. Uh, 
a gunfight ensued and uh, seven cops were dead. Seven coppers. Let's call them what they were. Coppers. And uh, uh, like, uh, was, you know, multiple, multiple minors were injured. Uh, four died, I think. But what happened was a group of the protesters or the or labor organizers were scapegoated as they never found who threw the bomb, but they were so just get the ringleaders. Yeah. And it was, you know, they were adjudged to have constituted a conspiracy and uh, several of them were sent to the gallows. Mm. And this galvanized the American labor movement and it radicalized uh, Mary Jones. She's in a training camp on Chicago's Lower East Side. Well, that's right. <laughs> Out there is learning. There, is, is there a no-go zone? Learning the jihad of, right. of this. And she had the uh, the innovative idea that if you were going to organize workers, what you needed to do or, or an effective method would be to organize their wives. So it wasn't sufficient to just send, or it, and in some cases wasn't effective. Like to reorganize their cupboards? No, no, to, to join protests or to protest themselves. Mm. But both because they were sympathetic, but also because they had tremendous hold over their husbands and what their husbands were going to do or say during the day. So it was one thing for the men in a factory to all stand there and, you know, um, huddle and rattle their wrought iron at, at the, at the, the detectives, the Pinkerton detectives that were arrayed against them. Mm -hmm. But it was another thing for all the wives and children in a town to effectively go on strike, not let their husbands go to work. Or they, they often would stand out and, and bang brooms on trash can lids and say, strike, strike, strike. And a lot of this was, you can't open fire, can't open fire, but also the, 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 what was happening here was labor unions were trying to unionize industries and towns. And so it wasn't just that the, that these protests were against the corporate fathers or the masters. It was also that the protests were meant to galvanize non-union families to join the union. At, at which point, you know, they would then develop a majority and have negotiating power. Right. Uh, and so, Enlisting the wives and the children in this process, um, Mary Jones became a kind of a power in the labor force or in the in the union force because nobody it not occurred to anyone to do it. it. It doubles the the turnout at your rallies. Yeah, that's right. And this was happening again somewhat uh, contemporaneously with the women's suffrage movement. Do I get to do my impression of the women's suffrage lady from Mary Poppins? Let's hear it. We're merely soldiers in petticoats. I feel like I do this on the show a lot. I don't know. I don't Dauntless know. Dauntless crusaders for women's votes. That's very that, nice. That's good. It's good. Yeah, I think I think it's, the future links rock solid. Run out and watch Mary Poppins right now to get understand Ken's uh, impression. Mary Jones was ran somewhat afoul of the suffragettes because she did not advocate for. Uh, women earning the franchise. She did not want women to vote. She was a member of that generation or that school of thought that said, uh, women don't need the vote. They already kind of control the household. And as long as they control how the men vote, why, why, why bother with all the shenanigans? It's interesting that someone who has realized what a powerful force women can be in the labor movement 
doesn't also want to leverage that in the political arena. Her quote was, you don't need the vote to raise hell. Does she feel like... So she was a, you know, hard-bitten uh, cigar chump and labor organizer. I just wonder what her response would be to, what if you could raise more hell with the vote? Keep, keep Continue to raise your current amount of hell, but you could amp that hell up with the franchise. Yeah, and I think, I think culturally at the time, the idea of... I mean, really, yeah, if, it, if it just strikes you as wrong from where you come from and then you're just inventing reasons, but also that's one thing, I mean, I think people at the time were arguing whether or not populism and the extending the vote to uneducated minors was a good idea. You know, it hadn't been that long before that the the vote was much more restricted. But you think her working class milieu would uh, would would fight against that. You would. She's not somebody who thinks that. It's dangerous for poor factory workers to vote. Well, and when she was accused of being anti-women's uh, votes, she pushed back and said, anything that uplifts the the class, the, the lower class, I'm in favor of. I just don't currently see how the women's vote does it. It could be one of these like, yeah, this is not our battle thing. You know, all right. the LGBT activists that were not pro-gay marriage because they thought it was not the next battle it was counterproductive. There were other things you could win and we're surprised at how fast it happened. And I, I think that's, I think that's true. And I think maybe it also felt to her like something that was never going to happen. Right. And so why get distracted right, by distraction? Yeah. Uh, but she became a, a, a well-known person in the United States, always turning up at, at union events, um, building union membership, and during this period, she adopted this persona of Mother Jones. She would arrive. <laughs> She's doing character work. She, she she really did. She would kind of arrive in a town, and she had she had this sort of tone and way where she, you know, almost infantilized the men by calling them her boys. She squeezing cheeks and stuff. Yeah, she put herself up in a in the position, a very powerful position of of a loving mother. That made both the union, uh, you know, members feel like a lot of affection for her, but also made her somewhat unimpeachable on the national stage. She wasn't there wearing dungarees um, and, you know, being a masculine figure that could have divided public opinion. She, She's a nice older lady. She was. And she started dressing in a very matronly way. Because she's not that old, right? She's she's not that old, she's, but she starts exaggerating her age. A very unusual thing, I think, for anyone to do at any time. But, but she's, a woman in her 40s especially. <laughs> a woman in her 40s to start describing herself as being in her 60s mm. uh, in order to create this this yeah, character, this personage of Mother Jones. That's great that she's working on some new sketch characters. It's pretty hot stuff, right? I'm imagining her looking like Dana Carvey with the wig on or something. You know, she's a, she's a church lady type. Hey there, it's Jonathan Strickland from Tech Stuff. Be sure to tune in to a very special episode of Tech Stuff that was recorded inside a Mazda CX-30 at the LA Auto Show, where I discuss all the ins and outs of human-centric design. While you're listening, be sure to check out the first ever CX-30 at MazdaUSA.com slash iHeart, or better yet, to see the entire Mazda vehicle lineup, visit your local area Mazda dealer today. She had a big effect on uh, 
on the mining union. She showed up at a lot of those, uh, but a lot of those coal mine protests. That, I mean, there was a in West Virginia, in particular, in Pennsylvania, there was a whole period where, uh, it, like in northern West Virginia, most of the coal mines had uh, were unionized, mm-hmm. but in southern West Virginia, down around the Kentucky border. It was very mountainous terrain, very rural, very isolated, and the un- the the mines down there were far enough away that they hadn't been unionized yet. So miners in the north, coal doing coal mining, were getting paid a lot more and working under better conditions than miners in the south because the the southern coal mines had a company store. They had been able to keep out the rabble rousers. They had, and so when. Um, when labor unions tried to get in there, it was the owner class sort of saw it as a last stand kind of situation. You know, it was the last redoubt and to, uh, to organize those areas would have been, you know, it's the same argument that owners make always, and they make it today. They made it here in Seattle about the $15 an hour minimum wage that we enacted a couple of years ago. The argument is always the same. What's bad for business is bad for America. And if we do this, if we pay people $2 an hour more, if we cut working hours to eight hours a day, we will no longer be profitable and we'll have to close and everyone will lose their jobs. How do you like it now? And nowadays you can say in some other place, you know, it just means that all the business will go to China. Yeah, all the business will go to China. And it's always been thus, right? This is always the argument of uh, management. Is we'll take our ball and go home. We cannot give you these these uh, concessions. We'd love to. We would, but we'll have to close, and you'll all be out of work, and your children will starve. What so, do you want? Your crappy job or no job? Right. And um, I think the history of work demonstrates that when labor in, exacts some of these concessions. Businesses generally stay open. So many people, even on the sensible left, wanted Seattle's $15 minimum wage to fail terribly. Well, yeah, because there was, you know, there was uh, uh, the sensible left said, well, too you know, soon. Uh, and they're going to end up making less because they lose their tips yeah. and all this stuff. And, you know, it was six months of people trying to figure out whether to give tips or not. There were all those restaurant owners who were like, we now include tips in the cost of the meal. And, because blah, and then then the waiters and uh, and bartenders were saying, yeah, the owners are taking thirty percent of the tips now, <laughs> just like so, so. Sometimes, sometimes they would just add a surcharge after, so it wouldn't even be in the cost on the menu. You know, it would be it would there'd be a thing at the bottom that said, and we add such right. and such twenty percent to every for, meal. It's not your choice. Yeah, no tipping, but also we're not going to actually raise our prices because that would look bad. Uh, by the turn of the century. Uh, 1901, um, Mother Jones had uh, started to crusade on behalf of uh, female workers and children in the factories. There was uh, there were still a lot of children as part of the workforce. In fact, something on the order of one sixth of all kids in America had a job. Wow! In 1901. I wish my kids had a job. I know. I'm like, jealous of these I got kids. a couple of jobs my my daughter could do around here, like emptying the dishwasher once in a while. Want to kill him? You know, she knows how to do it. I taught her how to make coffee, which was my, I think, my signature move. <laughs> so, I, Because she, she likes it because it feels like an adult thing. 
So I can say, go make coffee, and she'll make a pretty halfway decent cup Does of coffee. Does she spell your name wrong on your cup? No. She like, Jim? No. Every, Jim. Every, every cup in this house has my picture stenciled on it. <laughs> Uh, but uh, there were, you know, th- this was also an era of textiles and textile mills. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that work was done by teenage girls, children. The uh, Their hands could get into the machines their and do the delicate hands. work, oh, their no. little hands. Snow piercer. Uh, <laughs> that's right. And so, so she attempted, Mother Jones attempted to make this a, a cause celeb. But she discovered that in trying to uh, to publicize it and popularize the notion that children shouldn't have jobs, um, she realized that by this point in time, the sort of capitalist intertwined network uh, of the owner class meant that most mill owners also were stockholders in newspapers. <laughs> and so none of the newspapers would cover uh, during this period – a lot of the labor agitation because it was a because it really was a sort of a backroom deal. The reporters wanted to cover it, but the editors wouldn't put it on the front page. Some of the child labor stuff must be a hard sell for the working class as well. Because what you're really saying is, you know, maybe three of the incomes in your household should not be should not be there. Right. And like it, it would be better for America if your kids were in school, but it's going to cut your income in half. To take the kids out of the factories and the young women out of the factories does sort of paternalize work. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was uh, also during an era of education reform. So the idea that the American notion, the meritocratic idea that education will lift you out of poverty. The kids will have a better life if I can get them out of the factory into school. Right. And so, so there were public schools and that was a, that was a social movement. And the idea that these children were working in factories, essentially dooming themselves to a lifetime of, you know, uh, severed fingers and whatnot. Merc- mercury poisoning. Um, while, ki- while affluent kids were going to school and, and bettering their lives. Pushing a hoop with a stick. That became, that's right. Using their roller skate key. <laughs> uh, that became a part of the, part of the language of the organization. Or of, of the or, or the organizing movement. I guess once the kids are out of the factories, wages go up for who's That's right. left. And, and, you know, work becomes uh, – skilled work becomes skilled. Now, this is also happening uh, during a period when the, the, the industrialization and the mechanization of work is happening apace. So a lot of these jobs are getting – are automated be- becoming automated, right. Um, but her – Mother Jones's – when she realized that she was not getting any traction in her protest, uh, organized a march, a children's crusade mm. to, um, to march from Philadelphia to Theodore Roosevelt's home in Oyster Bay, New York. That's he a, was president at the time. It's kind of a long walk. Pretty long you walk. You walk across New Jersey. It's, you know, it's no hands across America, but it hands is. Hands across New Jersey. It is a long walk. And during the whole, and so then, of course, the newspapers had to cover this, this giant march of, of children and, and uh, young girls who were marching to TR's house. He's president at the time. Yeah. She tried to get, you know, his attention and, um, and never did get a satisfying response from him, but it did now make the newspapers and, uh, and, um, and started to stoke public opinion. 
to uh, the to the degree that that laws began to change. Um, you know that the eight hour workday had been instituted by this point, but <coughs> excuse me the the movement to end child labor then really took hold as a result of her agitation, and it was. Then during this sort of pre-war period, and we've talked about this a lot uh, in recent omnibuses, omnibi, the um, – I'm going to get so many letters for saying omnibi. Uh, 1912, 1913 uh, was a time when the, you know, the national consensus – labor unions had, had effectively become a, a political force in the United States, but there were still these holdouts. And this was, and the the coal wars were still going on, but there was a uh, there was an extremely you know galvanizing fight called the the uh, the Paint Creek Cabin Creek Coal Strike, and Mary or uh, Mother Jones was now a national figure so much so that she had been denounced on the Senate floor as the most dangerous woman in America, and she would bounce from. Protest to protest, kind of like a Al Sharpton. You'd call you call her in, yeah. And at, at the Pink Creek Cabin Creek, this was a situation where the miners. It, it had come down to this granular level: the miners that worked on Pink Creek were being paid two and a half cents more than the miners on Cabin Creek because one group was unionized and the other wasn't. This is where Pennsylvania or West it, Virginia. It was West Virginia, and um, and you know the the. Baldwin Fett's detective agency was in there shooting people, and it was a big, you know, hullabaloo. And Mother Jones arrives and um, is arrested. But the governor had declared martial law, so she was arrested by the military. Hmm. She's a POW. And subjected to a (laughs) court-martial. Wait. And I'd never—I didn't realize that a civilian could be court-martialed. Now I have a new goal. Like, I've never thought I was eligible for a court-martial. Now I kind of want to do it. Well, you need military law first. You need need martial law. Go somewhere where martial law has been declared. And then get in trouble. Get to go to a major U.S. city during a Godzilla movie. And I don't think think there's enough to be a burglar or something. You have to do something that that warrants a military tribunal. Poke an officer with a hat pin or something. But she was sent to – she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Whoa. Now, she only – it was very symbolic, right? Because she went – she was, you know, kind of held in uh, in a house arrest status. This is always huge. People, the movement loves this, right? Yeah. They just loved it, and it actually resulted in some reform. She was released after a couple of months, three months, maybe, uh, as as the Senate started to to, uh, to. I mean, everyone recognized, and I think the owners the owners recognized that they were on the losing end of this battle. You know, history. The arc of history bent toward justice in this instance. And she, you know, she was released and and reform started to happen within the coal industry. It worked. They they took the money and spread it out equal just like the Bible and prophets suggest. Not quite. Mm. Um in fact, later on uh you know, not that long afterwards, uh the coal strikes and the coal, the energy of the labor movement in the the sort of mining industry uh, shifted focus to Colorado, where a lot of the the more active in the bigger mines, um, and the and the non unionized mines were um, were all in that sort of you know the Rocky Mountain states now, 
And often what would happen is strikers uh, in company town scenarios, uh, the response from the owners would be to fire them and kick them out. And so you have, you have a whole class of strikers who are living way out on the frontier or the frontier even, and, uh, and all of a sudden they're fired and detectives arrive and expel them from their homes because their homes are owned by the company. And then their script, you know, they don't get paid. Their script is no longer valid in the company stores. They're, they're in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of they nowhere. They don't have options. So in the case of, uh, the, there's an incident in, in Ludlow, Colorado, where there were a thousand or more families, minor families living in a tent city, uh, as part of their strike. And the, the, uh, the mine owners like drove through the tent city on a train. I guess it was on either side of the train tracks. Yeah. Don't build your tent city on a, tr- on well, a railroad not track. on the trains tracks, but on either side. And they, they drove this armored train through there with machine guns and just shooting into the tents. Wow. Uh, and it was, you know, it was mother Jones that called attention to it. And actually John D Rockefeller traveled out John D Rockefeller, who had been, consistently one of the villains in all of these stories actually went out to Ludlow, Colorado, investigated or saw uh, firsthand what had happened. And then he began to reform his own, his own conglomerates to incorporate new labor policies. That's interesting that the media attention might, you know, convince 10,000 people back East, but what you really need is to for John D. Rockefeller to get on a train. Yeah, and I think that was a, a personal response to Mother Jones's entreaties and her, you know, extremely. She was such a great orator. She was by now, of course, a, a national figure and had been for decades. I guess we don't know if he was just embarrassed or if, think, it, or if his heart grew three sizes that day. Maybe, but. maybe both things, right? Maybe his little dog pulled that sleigh full of presents up from Whoville. Because today, no one's trying to convince Mark Zuckerberg. That he's he's doing something wrong. Really, you all, the best you can do is embarrass, yeah, Elon Musk. You know, make Bezos look bad by showing, you know, the awful thing that Amazon delivery awful live <laughs> Amazon delivery people have. You know, <laughs> and it, that it no longer works, right? But I feel like once you reach it, once you reach a tipping point where Rockefeller is already sitting in his office, going, "Is this worth it? Like, is machine gunning workers?" worth it or should we just pay them two cents an hour more they're all like well morgan's machine gunning workers yeah i mean you gotta you gotta keep up with the joneses keep up with the mother joneses oh yeah that's right uh in 1930 and and mother jones did not keep a uh entirely abreast of the changes in the labor movement you know we we talked today about the socialists the so the rise of the socialists now in in early 2020 or you know what yeah. there's a there's a lot of uh, of of uh, energy at least vocal energy directed toward the idea of socialism now as a political means uh d- and that was true of this era too american socialists have long been sort of split into two factions there are the social democrats and then there are the democratic socialists that seems confusing. The, well, they, they need better names. They do, but but they've they've really galvanized around these two terms, so we have to endure it, and we have to. And I'm often confused by it. Fine. The social democrats are the ones that are socialists, but ultimately 
they're Democrats. This is just European style right. government. They're not anti-capitalist. No, they want to reform capitalism. They want yes. to, you know, they want to change the wealth inequality. They want to restrict the 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 concentration of capital in a in a one percent. They want to they want to have a more distributive and collective kind of. But you do it with policy, not with um, that's right. not with uh, centralization or nationalization of industry. That's you, right. You, you raise taxes or improve safety nets or whatever. Whereas democratic socialists, rose emoji, uh, want uh, want to uh, uh, transform the whole system. They are anti-capitalist. And they want to bring a kind of centralized economy, as you said, like a like a, a governed economy. This is me and my Marxist dads. We get together and yeah. watch the game and talk yeah. about Trotskyite ideology. Yeah, you got you and your Marxist dads. We're talking about the dialectic during halftime. <laughs> and then you you pull out your phones and you check your bank accounts. <laughs> That's right. We're doing uh, great. <laughs> um, and so you know this is uh, this uh, schism. And for a, for a lot of the time, there's a I, I think democratic socialists and and social democrats combine forces in a to, to become the democratic socialist democrats. <laughs> it's an unholy alliance, <laughs> right? And and um, because the names are so confusing, and because I think even within the membership, there's a lot of confusion. Uh, and there's definitely more internecine squabbling, you know, within right. a movement than around it, you right? Know? Because because often. Uh, Although democratic socialists have a much more a much purer ideology, they often in America have to make concessions that really go against the purity of their of their beliefs. It's something I did not know until Twitter taught me yeah. is that there you know if there's one thing that leftists dislike more than conservatism, it's, it's liberals. It's That's liberal. right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, so you know Mother Jones didn't navigate all of uh, all of that too carefully and she as she got older she made some mistakes that she happens allied in with every the wrong movement. side you've it always does. got you've always got the old guy from the you know the first wave feminists showing up or the the you know the the grandfather of uh, some lgbt rights movement or the civil rights guy who has not kept up and says something into a mic that she shouldn't have like right. this this happens in all kinds of activists movement. What, what was Mother Jones's? Well, in 1930, wokeness. In 1930, she celebrated her 100th birthday. <gasps> That's so unusual, even today, and much it, less with 19th century genetics. Well, it was especially unusual given that she was only 87 years old. Oh, <laughs> she never took off the church lady wig. She never did, and she was, <laughs> you know, she was roundly celebrated for her 100th birthday. It was a big, you know, sort of national event. That's hilarious. That would be yeah. like if Flip Wilson's Geraldine turned 100 or something, and everybody would be like, yay, Geraldine. <laughs> there just wasn't as much, you know, there weren't as many truthers. There wasn't as much birtherism as there is now. <laughs> and so, uh, but she had, you know, she'd been sort of somewhat sidelined by the by the direction the labor movement took. You know, after the after some of these schisms between the Democratic Socialists and the Social Democrats, this was during the era of the rise of the American Communist Party, that we saw um, that we saw in bold relief after World War II when the you know when there were a list of eighty nine communists in the State Department. People were actually worried about four hundred communists or however many McCarthy found. What was it? Some number of communists. the numbers different every time yeah. he said it. That's what I learned from Manchurian Candidate. Uh, um, but uh, when she died, she was not a figure. Uh, she wasn't a figure in scandal, but she was a. Um, 
she, she, you know, she had been bypassed by the time, but because the labor movement continued to evolve as, uh, as time went on, her reputation post-mortem started to be rehabilitated and, uh, she started to be recognized as a hero of the labor movement. Um, and at some point a group of, uh, of unions got together and built her a big sort of pink marble obelisk, uh, where she'd been buried kind of under a humble headstone before. Does it have to be pink? Well, it's like a Mary Kay woman, you know. She was against the she was against the vote. She was always you know a ladies' that's right. lady. But it you know she has this obelisk that's flanked on either side by uh, by statues of miners in mining repose. Is this Chicago? Is it where yeah. is this? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then her reputation continued to grow. Uh, there is a you know there there's a holiday devoted to her now. Uh, there is the, yeah. The, I, I don't it, celebrate Mother Jones Day when. You don't. You didn't get me a card. You didn't get me flowers. <laughs> her her quote. I, I celebrate Mother's Day. Is that what you're talking about? Is this where Mother's Day comes from? It is. It's. Uh, it started <laughs> with Mother Mother Jones. No, um, Mother's Day. Or it, it's it's what is it? It's not International Women's Day, is it? Is that also Mother Jones Day? Maybe. Oh no! It's it's in October. It's it's a it's a Miners Day. Oh, okay, Miners Day, which is also called Mother Jones Mother Day. Jones Day because she's the center of that movement. It I guess. became it became the uh, the the slogan of the of Miners Everywhere, uh, which was uh, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. Mm. But I think her greatest legacy uh, was in the 1970s. Uh, Mother Jones magazine, sure, named themselves after her and became probably the preeminent radical magazine of at least our formative years. And still around, still a online uh, periodical. I mean, you know, I don't want to say going strong because that's what then the magazine closes. It's nobody's right. going strong, but Mother Jones is still a important, influential voice of the left. Well, I doubt they pray for the dead. But I bet they do fight like hell for the living. And that concludes Mother Jones, entry 675.mk0333, certificate number 12952, in the Omnibus. Now, before we leave you, we want to remind you that uh, people of our era could uh, follow uh, John on Twitter and Instagram, at John Roderick. I was at Ken Jennings. Collectively, we were at Omnibus Project. Listeners, uh, appreciative listeners of the show congregated on Facebook uh, as the Futurelings and some kind of similarly named forum on Reddit as well. Uh, We welcomed communication, digital communication from our uh, listeners at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Physical items could be sent to uh, the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Our... uh, our correspondent Sparky sent us this from. He's usually uh, road tripping around the United States as a trucker, I think. But this is from a cave in Belize. Oh, sure, I know him. He, the uh, Sparkster. Uh, he wanted to go there because of the scuba diving and jungle adventures and puns. He got a keychain that says, "You better Belize it." Hmm. It's not a. It's not, it looks like a great cave, but it's not a great pun. That's why you went to Belize. I. I have serious doubts. I feel like you could just get the keychain without going on a plane. I've heard very nice things about Belize. 
I am going. You go- better believe it. I'm going. You better believe it. I'm going in February. Oh. I, I think I want to go to this very cave. And uh, my wife does not. Right. It's You have to swim through things and squeeze through things. Oh, I don't like that. She doesn't. She's, I don't like that. It's a cenote of some kind, I'm guessing. Are you, uh, I think it, the, the Mayans believed it was the entrance to the Mictalon or the underworld. Are you claustrophobic? Yes. I do not like going through small spaces to get into a space that I can't get out of without going back through a small space. <laughs> and yet you were born. Once. <laughs> never. <laughs> let first, it happen again. Your first words. That's right. Never again. <laughs> Uh, so you can send us physical items there if you wish to send us financial support. We are so grateful that the show of now in its independent state appears to be a going concern. And that's because of the uh, generosity and affection shown by uh, our contemporaneous listeners. Um, if you would like to make a donation and avail yourself of some of the uh, perks that come with it, a, a monthly addenda addendum show show mm-hmm. of addenda mm-hmm. um then yeah if, if eight or nine of these a month is not enough for you for <laughs> some reason uh, first of all in, uh, congratulations on your eight hour work day <laughs> eight hour work week <laughs> but uh if you crave more content uh that's one of the perks that comes with donation at patreon.com slash omnibus project right good job uh is that everything I have to. Th- it just gets longer yeah, every yeah, yeah, time. Yeah, it's right. like one of those hilarious campfire songs yeah. that gets longer every time, and I've always hated them. <laughs> Ninety-nine bottles of <laughs> omnibus on the wall. You know, most omnibus listeners, I think, are are dissecting crawdads, or they are installing uh, like plates on a satellite or something. Oh, they're working. They're they're in, they're in their craft union while they listen. Yeah, they're able to listen to the show and also do their extremely complicated technical science job. You know why you can do that? Mother Jones. The union negotiated right to listen to Omnibus on the job. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, from within our eight-hour work week, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We work a lot harder than eight hours a week, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I don't want to depress donations by by uh, bragging about our leisurely lifestyle. We work hard for our living, and you better treat us right. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been a final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Why do you travel? To recover from heartbreak? To trace your DNA? Escape the internet? On our podcast, A Way to Go, we've been exploring all the reasons we travel. I'm Geraldine Gerba. I'm Pavia Rosati. And together, we're the founders of travel website Fathom. And we've already heard so many great stories. Such as... An actress in rural Kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex. A graffiti artist tagging the islands of Southeast Asia. A producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert. Listen to A Way to Go on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 